scripture reading this morning is in uh, is from Hosea, a couple verses in chapter one, and then a, a few in chapter three. Uh, the Bible in, in the pew in front of you on page nine forty will be the first set of verses, and then on nine forty two is the is the second. I'll begin at verse two of chapter one. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now over in chapter 3, the first five verses. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Hopefully Neil will tell us what a homer and a lethic of barley are. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Ah, that's the Homer and Olivia. A little bit of barley and a little bit more barley. That's what that means. So probably a lot of you showed up today and, and you looked around and you said, okay, first of all, who got married yesterday? And second of all, why in the world didn't they clean up? <laughs> And, uh, and then you might have gotten worried about what all was going on today. Uh, but we, uh, I was thankful that a couple of people were willing to help us put this together and kind of bring this uh, part of the message series alive for us as we spend two weeks instead of one week talking about the bride and groom. We've been in this series called Me and God Are Like. And, and basically the idea is we've been talking about oh, the, uh, this question. Who is God? And and what's he have to do with me? And we've talked about how this is a primal question that people have been asking from the beginning. From the beginning of time. And people wrestle with this question. Even still today. And if you're here and you're not sure what you believe yet. And you're still working all that out. This question is definitely one that you wrestle with. But also if, if you're a Christian and you're here today, you've been a Christian a long time, maybe your whole life, as long as you can remember, this question is for you as well. Because as Christians, it is our heart's desire to know God better. And we grow in that through our whole life long. And so this series matters to all of us. Because in this series, God answers the question. And, and he, when you look through scripture, you'll find metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor. Word pictures that God has painted for us to show us glimpses of what it's like. What our relationship to him is like. 
And so this is what we're doing in this series is just kind of taking one of those metaphors at a time. We've looked at the pot and the clay, the vine and the branches, the sheep and the shepherd. And so now we're going to look at the bride and the groom. And then we'll have a couple more and then we're not going to cover them all this year. So maybe we'll do this series again sometime and cover some more. Because God has just filled up the Bible with these metaphors. They're not meant to be literal. Which, by the way, let me give a disclaimer on this because... Here we are this week talking about the bride and groom. And now, fellas, some of us take offense to being called a bride, right? I mean, that's basically what God's saying. He's saying, you know, the church is the bride. Well, that includes me, and I've never been called a bride before in my life. <laughs> and if you did, you'd have to answer for it, all right? No. But so, so what do we do with this? You know, and the first thing I want to point out is every, every writer of... The Bible that used this metaphor, every person that used this metaphor, even Jesus himself, they were all men, right? And they were all manly men, all right? At least as manly as you. And so, you, we can find some assurance in that. And second of all, just let's remember it's a metaphor, right? It's not literal and you don't have to worry about it the second coming God's not going to turn you into a girl and then marry you and whisk you away on a literal honeymoon this you don't have to worry about that this is a this is a metaphor and this is a word picture this is an example and really as guys we get a unique perspective because in this metaphor we get a sense of what God's saying he feels towards us as his people as his church that's unique to us because only we have the opportunity to experience the emotions of a groom. And so just a little disclaimer as we dive into this. I don't want anyone feeling grumpy the whole time that we're talking about this. Now we're doing two parts because this metaphor is found in the Old Testament and the New Testament several times in each. And it's used quite a bit differently in the Old Testament from the New Testament. And so we're going to kind of take the Old Testament this week which, as you might have guessed from the reading, is a little bit heavy. And then uh, next week, it'll be a little bit lighter. We're even going to have a, we're also going to have a vow renewal next week. And it's just, we're doing this upright, all right? We got, me and God are like a bride and groom. Now, marriage, marriage is one of those things, God created it. And, and when it works like God created it, it's one of the best things known to mankind. But when we blow it, when we mess it up, it's one of the nastiest things. It just stinks sometimes. And, and so I wanted to tell you just a story I've heard about adultery stinking. All right? And maybe you've heard this story, but there's this guy named Jake, and he's married to Edith for some 30 years, but decides to dump her for his young secretary. And so Jake lets her know and they go through the divorce proceedings and one of the things that Jake's new little girlfriend wants is to live in his multi-million dollar home and so since he's got the big lawyers he, uh, he pretty much runs over Edith and gives her three days to move out of their home with all of her stuff so the first day Edith uh, packs up her stuff into boxes the second day the movers take it out the third day she sits down at her glorious dining room table that she's about to lose and breaks out some shrimp and some caviar and just decides to enjoy her last day now she eats this for a while and then she takes what's left of the shrimp tails and she takes uh, the caviar she dips the shrimp tails in the caviar and stuffs it 
into all the curtain rods throughout the house. And then she heads on out. Well, Jake and his new girlfriend move into the house the following day and everything's glorious for a few days in their little mansion on the hilltop and uh, they, it's going along fine and they start noticing a smell right and, and it gets worse and it gets worse and, and they try to clean the, the woolen carpets and they clean the drapes and they clean everything in the house and can't get rid of this smell finally they decide we've got to sell this place but they can't get anyone to buy it. They can't even get a real estate agent to touch this thing. It smells so bad. Well, one day, Edith calls just to, you know, the ex-wife checking on how things are going. And uh, Jake says, well, you know, not so good with the house. It's just something's rotting in here. It's just awful. And we've got to get out from under this thing somehow. And she says, well, you know, I, I just love our old home. And, and I would, you know, I, I would even take it with the smell, you know, if you could sell it to me at a price I could afford. So he gives it to her for like a tenth of the price. And uh, she, he thinks, she don't know how bad this place stinks. <laughs> Alright? So we'll just give it to her and stick it to her, you know, and then she's going to get the short end of this stick as well. So moving day comes, he hands over the keys and Edith walks in and looks around and sees that they gutted the place. Didn't leave anything for her, not even the curtain rods. <laughs> So, so adultery stinks. And uh, but you know if you've ever experienced adultery, if you've ever been the adulterer or someone has betrayed your trust, then you know that it stinks, but it ain't funny. And it hurts. I mean, it's the stuff that our nightmares are made of, right? The things that we dread, I mean, when we get married, and even when you have a, a faithful, good marriage, it's the thing you fear. Because you see it happen to people that you never thought it would happen to, and you start wondering, could it happen to me? And the pain of it is so unique. It can rip your heart out, it feels like. And so adultery stinks, and... God talks about the bride and groom in the Old Testament. It usually has to do with faithfulness. And several prophets describe this in a dark time of Israel's history where they had turned their back on God and God was getting ready to exile them. And prophets were often asked to bring this message in a variety of ways using different metaphors and and even to use their own lives as a living metaphor. And so we see this sometimes with, I mean, wild stuff. Just be thankful you weren't called as an Old Testament prophet for a lot of reasons, all right? I mean, Isaiah walked around buck naked for about three years. Jeremiah <laughs> wore a, uh, had, had a cattle yoke tied to his shoulders that he had to walk around with. Ezekiel was told to lay on his left side... Now, that doesn't sound so bad. 390 days consecutively. <laughs> Just laying on his left side. And Hosea gets blessed with this one. Hosea, go and find you a woman that's sure to break your heart. Go find you a woman who won't be faithful to you and marry her. Well, 
And so while other prophets talk about God's people being like his bride and God the groom and and this adultery of Israel, Hosea is charged with actually putting it on display with his own life. Doing something that no one in their right mind would have done in that day, which is to go and marry a woman of ill repute. Take her as his wife. And so he goes and he marries this woman named Gomer, which sounds hilarious to us. <laughs> but maybe that was the beautiful day of the name of the day. I don't know. Um, he marries this Gomer. And I just want us to kind of read between the lines for a minute and, and think about what isn't, what's just assumed in the text that maybe we, we don't naturally assume as, as readers once would have. For a woman in Gomer's situation, for, for a man like Hosea to come along and marry them was literally unheard of. I mean, it just didn't happen. It was unthinkable. It's like winning the lottery, <laughs> alright? Because no one wanted the damaged goods, so to speak. And so what does that mean for the life of a woman who's a prostitute? What does she have to look forward to at the end of her life? And she no longer can do her trade. No one wants her anymore. How, where is she going to get her life from? Certainly not from her husband like every other woman was to do. The life was not a glamorous life, but at the same time there weren't very many, if you were cast out on your own for whatever reason, orphaned, whatever, there weren't very many occupational options for women in that day. So when Hosea comes along and says, will you marry me? It's like winning the lottery. I mean, the prostitutes of that day would have loved to have that opportunity. A solid man who's going to provide for me the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? That just doesn't happen. And so they get married and they make the vows. And then she cheats on him. And she breaks the vows that she made. And so she gets cast aside. She broke apart the marriage. You know, I mean, sometimes you hear about people with, uh, you know, just to continue the lottery thing. You know, you hear about people winning the lottery and in a year or two they're just as broke as they ever were or more, you know. Probably more because they had enough credit to run up debt, you know, and now they're in worse shape than they started out. And, and it seems like that's kind of where Gomer is. She won the lottery in a sense and then she just blew it. Why is Hosea doing all this? What's the message? God says, it's because, do all this, Hosea, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery. The land, the people, the nation of Israel is guilty of adultery against me. And in between chapters 1 and 3, which we read bits of just a moment ago, there's chapter 2, which contains kind of a poem or a song where God kind of 
you know, Hosea is living out the metaphor, and here God explains the metaphor in chapter 2. And here's a few things he says in explanation. He says, Israel, she said, I will go after my lovers who give, my, give me, not give my my, give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. See what he's saying there. He's using this metaphor to describe Israel chasing after the nations around them and their stuff. We don't ever chase after stuff, do we? She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they had used for Baal. So God's giving her this stuff and then she's using it. He's giving Israel this stuff and they're using it to worship idols instead of God. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals, the idols. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but, she, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. I mentioned this isn't the only place that uses this metaphor. Hosea is not the only one to use it. In fact, the most descriptive version of this metaphor is found in Ezekiel. When he wasn't laying on his side, he was talking about <laughs> how God um, you know, was like a bride and groom and, and the unfaithfulness of Israel. And there's this chapter in Ezekiel 16. It's probably one of the hardest chapters to read in all the Bible. And I'm not comfortable reading it to you today, so I'm going to give you a, a more politically correct synopsis or something here. And maybe that's not the right term, but a softer synopsis. And if you want to ever read something in the Bible that'll, that'll be heart and gut-wrenching, this is a chapter to do it. It doesn't mince words. That some of it's hard to read. But Ezekiel goes into great description of this metaphor. He says, in fact, that it was like, it was like Israel started out as just this baby that was discarded. Just thrown aside. No one had done a, a thing to this baby. And God comes along and, and sees this baby, washes the baby, cares for the baby, provides for the baby. And this baby girl grows up one day and becomes a, a young woman. And God sees that she's beautiful and he, and he takes her as his bride and adorns her with riches and everything, provides everything that she needs. And then some. And then God says, but her beauty, she allowed it to go to her head. And she began giving away the stuff that I gave her to other lovers. So they'd come and sleep with her. And, and she even sacrificed her children. God says, describing how Israel had actually sacrificed children to pagan gods. And so God says he, her, her behavior was beyond just prostitution. It was worse than that. I mean, the most perverse, despicable acts that you can think of. And so he casts her out. He says, I'll have nothing more to do with you and you'll have my wrath for what you've done. My jealous anger. 
God's jealousy causes people trouble sometimes because you know jealousy is supposed to be a sin, right? And so how does that work, you know? And I mean, we, we consider jealousy a sin. Even our world, people that aren't even very Christian, they consider jealousy as a wrong thing. Some of them even take it to bizarre lengths and saying that, you know, well, you shouldn't be mad at me because I cheated on you with someone else. You, should, you know, this is an open relationship. You ever heard that one? I mean, people do that. They have open marriages, they call it. And they think somehow they're not going to hurt each other because neither of them is going to be jealous. And I just think, what kind of spouse would I be if I wasn't jealous of my wife? And there's a right kind of jealousy, a loving kind of jealousy, and God has that kind of jealousy for His people. They've, he's committed to them, they've committed back to Him, and when they break that commitment, it breaks His heart. And there's sadness and there's anger just like there is for us when we experience that in our own lives and in our own marriages. Here's what's amazing. The metaphor in the Old Testament never stops there. It never stops at, look what you've done, O people of God. Look how you've turned your back on me. Look how you've gone and... and gone to these other idols and you've worshipped them and you've committed adultery with your God from your God by worshipping these other gods and look how you've now you've incurred my wrath you've incurred my jealousy I'm going to cast you out but it never ends there God always hopes and he always offers hope that's incredible Back to Hosea in the third chapter that we read from. God tells Hosea, I want you to go back to your wife. I want you to go back. Pay the price that it takes to get her back out of the sex slavery that she's back into. Redeem her. That's what that means. And I want you to bring her back, make her your wife again, love her again. It's a tall order. But again, there's that chapter 2 in between where God explains the metaphor. And I want to just read to you a little bit of what he says in there. Because it's some of the, it's just beautiful poetry is what it is. From God to his people. He says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. Now this is God talking about his people. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. And I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. And no longer will their names be invoked. 
I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. God has this dream. His dream is a people who will be as faithful to him as he has been to them. He loved them first, and now he dreams of a people that will respond to that and love him back. A people who will be like he planned it from the start to be when he created this whole world before it all got broken apart. God has this beautiful dream. What he says to Hosea to do is not a commandment for all husbands or wives who have ever been cheated on to go out and do that same thing that Hosea did to his wife. Instead, on the contrary, it's like, you'd never do this, but I will do this for you because I love you that much. That even though you have done the most despicable acts of adultery, I love you and I dream of a day when you will love me back as faithfully as I have loved you. What a story of God's incredible love to us. <laughs> I mentioned this at our Thanksgiving dinner the other day, but perhaps one of, perhaps the greatest attribute of God is his faithfulness. And perhaps that's also the thing that we take most for granted. Because faithfulness by its very nature is monotonous, isn't it? It's just, it's the same every day. It's faithful, so it just keeps right on going. It's always there. You wake up to it every day. If you've had a faithful spouse for 50 years, and you've had 50 years of waking up to the same old stinky breath and the same old, you know, <laughs> the, the, all the good things too, and the, uh, it's faithfulness. Some people call that boring. But there's something about the peace that it brings, isn't it? And the joy that it brings that people who don't ever experience that can never know. And so it is with God that every morning we arise and He's there waiting to talk to us. And we breathe in the air that He provided for us. And we watch the leaves change color each fall. And fall to the ground. And we, the changing of seasons, the, the sun keeps getting the earth spinning around it. And the moon keeps spinning around the earth. And The clock keeps ticking and we keep breathing and enjoying this life and the blessings that God has poured out on us and He gives us incredible relationships with friends and family members and and it's faithful. So it's easy not to notice. What if God wasn't faithful one day? I'm sure we'd all take it in stride, right? God's faithfulness evaporated. I mean, the slightest thing goes wrong in our life and we get angry at God, right? What if he stopped being the faithful, ever constant presence? Hmm. God's faithfulness 
is contrasted by his people's all too often unfaithfulness. And even in my own life, this metaphor, it breaks my heart because I know that there's been times in my life where I've been unfaithful to the God who saved me, who loves me, who's constantly faithful to me. And I read those passages and sometimes where Israel's names has stood, I've seen my name staring back at me. And it breaks my heart. And I feel ashamed of that. Have you ever been there? But maybe that's the starting point. Maybe that's the first place to start. That the first step towards being faithful to God is experiencing shame. It seems clear that God wants His people in the Old Testament to experience some shame, doesn't it? I mean, He goes into great detail explaining exactly what they have done, what they're guilty of, how shameful it is. And so the first step is just to experience shame, to be humble enough to experience shame. Have you experienced shame with God? The second part of it, though, is we have to experience grace as well for to be faithful to God. We have to experience the shame, but we also have to be willing to experience the grace. And sometimes I wonder, you know, we know that it takes humility to experience shame. Sometimes I wonder if it doesn't require just as much or more humility to experience grace. Because a lot of people, you know, they can experience the shame part and they'll accept their guilt and their sin, but then it, it, even that gets twisted somehow by pride. And it's not a pride that, that says, God, you know, I, I'm not worthy of your help or I don't need your help. It's a, it's a pride that says, God, I do need you, but I've messed up too bad for you to fix it. What I've done is is too wrong, and and your grace is not going to cover it. The blood of Jesus is not enough for me. I'm a bigger sinner than that. My problems are bigger than what you can fix, God. So maybe in some sense there's a, there's a, a way that we have to experience... Enough humility to accept grace as well. And I think the best picture of this in the Bible is David. The shepherd boy that became a king. The one described as a man after God's own heart. And yet also a chief of sinners. How does that work? I mean, if a guy commits adultery, gets another man's wife pregnant, and then murders him to cover it up, We wouldn't elect him dog catcher, much less make him a pastor or a king or something like that. And yet God seems to care especially for David, makes special promises to David, keeps those promises even though there's consequences for David's sin. Why? What is it about David that God found so special when he obviously isn't much more special than the rest of us as far as... I mean, he messed up pretty bad. He messed up worse than I plan on messing up, I can tell you that. So what is it that makes David so special to God? And I think 
that it's his humility. He's so quick to feel shame and accept grace. I think that's so special to God because he knows that's exactly what we need to be in a right relationship with him, to experience faithfulness to God. Look at what David does. When, when Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David with what he's done and he tells him a story and it's like the blinders come off and David it's, realizes the magnitude of what he's done. He's been rationalizing it. He's been pretending it didn't happen. I don't know what he's doing to make it work where he can just keep on going with, you know, brazen with his old lifestyle as though nothing bad had happened but all of a sudden the blinders are ripped away and he's confronted with Shame, and he accepts that shame head on and just melts down. And I don't think it was just because of the consequences he was going to have to suffer for his actions. There's always consequences to our sin and to our rejection of God. But it was more than that. And when you read his words, as we're going to do in a minute, it was, he hurt for the way that he had hurt God. But it didn't, it didn't just stop there either. David was also humble enough to accept grace. And say, God, save me. Not because of me, but because of you. Save me because of your faithfulness. Save me because of your love. Save me because of who you are and for the glory of your name. And he's humble enough to... That's, that's a humble acceptance of grace. Even while just covered in shame so at the end of this message today I just want us to read this Psalm 51 and and Nick's gonna you can come on up Nick he's gonna actually read for us Psalm 51 and then I'll come back up and, and say a prayer but I just want you to listen to the words that Nick reads this is the words of David having been confronted by the prophet Nathan this is the song that he wrote the prayer that he wrote Just reflect on it and let it make it your prayer today. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you have proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face uh, from my sins and blot out all my inequity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Thanks. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for faithfully loving us in spite of us. And to our shame, O God, we confess our unfaithfulness today. None of us here have loved you perfectly. There's times where we're tempted and lured away by the things of this world that are made to look so attractive. As if temporary created things could ever compare to you. Holy Spirit, mark us as recipients of grace. Send us forth as agents of grace into this world that needs grace just as much as we do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.